reading verses 1 through 17. And if you're using a pew Bible, it is found on page 1,676. John 15, 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Thank you, Pete. And I think if anyone was here (laughs) this morning and knows how long the text was this morning, they think, oh, well, maybe there's a reprieve and the sermon will be shorter, too. (laughs) Don't bet on it. Um, But yeah, yeah, let's just go ahead and stop and pray first and ask the Lord's blessing over this time. Our Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be in your house looking at your word together. And Father, we thank you for the promise that your word will not return void. So Lord, even as we open it, and even as we have just read it, we know that fruit has been born from just reading your word 
and hearing your word. And now, Lord, would you open our minds and our hearts to, to receive what you would give us tonight, this afternoon. In the name of Jesus, amen. Yeah, even, even as, as Pete was reading this just now, I was just thinking how rich, how rich this text is. Maybe just a little less sound? I don't know. Is everyone you're okay? Um, just how rich this passage is. I just kept seeing new things even now, even though I've been poring over it for a while. And so tonight we're going to just basically scratch the surface, I think, of this passage, but maybe in a little different direction than what we've looked at it, how we've looked at it before. And as we begin, I just want to start with talking a little bit about our own experience. And that is, of course, we travel around the world quite a bit. And for, for boys like my own, and don't worry, I'm not going <laughs> to say too much about you personally. But for boys like our own and, and other kids who live in other cultures than their home culture, there's a name for these kids. And they're called third culture kids, or TCKs. And this is a term that we're quite familiar with. Um, and these are, these are kids who have grown up in a, in a culture that is not the same as their passport culture. And what happens is they, they kind of develop a third culture that's between the culture they, they come from and the culture they live in. That's not really a part of either one of those. And there are certain things that identify these third culture kids. And one of those, you might say, you know you're a third culture kid if you have a favorite airport. <laughs> so I could probably ask my boys right now, what's your favorite airport? They could probably give me one. In fact, we even heard a story not too long ago about one, of, one kid who, who, after going through this particular airport, it was actually the airport in Seoul, South Korea. Amazing, we've been there. He actually asked his parents later, can we go on vacation to the Seoul airport? Because it was just such a great place. He just wanted to go there as a vacation spot. But that's the life we live, just passing through one place and another. We pass through airports, we pass through cities, and we just pass through. We don't really get to know those places, but we have a little bit of knowledge of them. And I'm afraid that that's really what happens so often, even in our interaction with, with God and with Jesus. Is sometimes... We're just passing through on our way somewhere else. We're just passing through on our way to work. On, on our way to meal time, we stop and, and we bow our heads and we have a devotional. And we're just passing through. And today, what we're going to talk about is really what I think even connects into this morning. I, I hope you didn't think that I was too hard on Moses because when I was talking about Moses, I was talking about myself. And I wasn't trying to throw him under the bus, but I think that this was early in Moses' relationship with God, his first encounter with God at the burning bush. And tonight what we're going to see is something that I think um, Moses discovered throughout his continuing walk with God over the years and the, the maturity that came in his life. I hope that we can tap into some of that even this afternoon. And as we begin to look at this passage Jesus uses the, the paradigm, the model, the, the illustration of the vineyard. And this was not something that was unusual, not, not unusual at all in, in the Bible. 
We see that throughout the Old Testament and many of the prophets and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah, I believe, where we talk about, God talks about Israel as his vineyard, that he has lovingly planted a vine and he has built a wall. And so he often talks about Israel as his vineyard. So this is a, an example that we often see. However, those examples often don't end too well. They end with the wall being torn down and other nations coming in. And then Jesus actually picks up this whole idea of the vineyard as well. Earlier in his ministry, he talks about we have a parable of the vineyard and the workers in the vineyard who, um, in this case, he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders and how they have been entrusted as tenants of the vineyard. And they do not care for the vineyard in the right way. In fact, they, they, they beat the messengers, the prophets who come, and they kill them. And in the end, even the son of the owner of the vineyard comes. And what do they do to him? They kill him. And this is Jesus himself. So here, Jesus does a little twist even on that idea. And I think this is just so relevant, because what he does here is instead of being God being the owner of the vineyard, and instead of himself as the son, he's actually a vine in the vineyard. And isn't that what Jesus does in the incarnation? He identifies himself with his people. And so I just think that's just an exciting um, way that Jesus enters in. And he takes a role. He is the vine in the vineyard. And even to take it a little step further, this is also here in John 15. This is where he is introducing the whole concept of the Holy Spirit coming. And when we think about abiding and being connected with God, are we ever any more connected than we are with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us? Wow. So I just really, I really think this is, there's a lot of significance in, in Jesus choosing this particular uh, image to give to us. And as it begins in verse 1, we're not going to get very far. Let me just read verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. As I started looking at this passage, even just that word, true, that caught my attention. Because I guess in my mind, I've always heard this as, I am the vine, you're the branches. I, I've never latched on to the word true. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, okay, if, if there's a true vine, which Jesus is, then I make the leap and I say, well, does that mean that there's possibly a false vine? If he's a true vine, is there possibly a false vine? And I started to think about that and meditate on that question. And as I did, I started thinking, well, the vine is our source, right? It's our source of life. It's our source of energy and strength and nutrition and everything that we need to sustain us. It's what gives us our identity and our significance. And I started thinking, well, we should be getting that through Jesus. That's where that comes from. But then I started thinking, do we sometimes look elsewhere to find that source of life and vitality in our lives? And I thought, yeah, I think we do. I think we do. And if we, if we start to look a little more closely, you know, Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think, yeah, where we invest ourselves, whether it be our time, our energy, our strength, our material possessions, our finances, that's where our heart is. And maybe that's exactly where our vine is 
that we're hooking into and we're seeking to fulfill us somehow. Now, these things, these false vines, aren't always going to be bad things. They could be, but a lot of times those false vines might be good things. They might be family. They might be your work, where you're looking to, to give yourself energy and life from these things. And to be quite honest, even church can be a false vine. If it's church itself and those activities and that life that goes around all the trappings of church, and not Jesus himself, even church can turn out to be a false vine. Let's look at Romans 125, where Jesus tells, well, where Paul tells us, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Isn't that what we're doing when we're drawing our life from a particular source? We're giving it worship. We're giving it energy. We're giving ourselves to it and hoping that it will feed us and sustain us. And so sometimes even creation is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But are the gifts that we have been given, are they taking the place of the giver? Are we worshiping sometimes and looking for sustenance from, from a false vine? from the created thing rather than the one who has created it. So, I want to give us a couple of tests to think about whether the vines that we are plugged into, connected to, abiding in, whether those vines are true, the true vine, Jesus, or whether they're false vines. Now, the first test I'll just touch on quickly. And this one is simply to look at the things in our lives, the things of, of importance and value in our lives, and think, if this were no longer, or if this person were no longer a part of my life, how would that affect me? How would that change my life? Would it devastate me? Would it take away my identity? Would it take away my, my joy? Now let's flip that question a little bit. What if, what if Jesus, what if Jesus were no longer part of your life? I don't mean church. I don't mean religion. What if the person of Jesus were no longer a part of your life. What would that do to you? What would that do to you? Would it really have an effect? Would it really change my day in, day out? Leave you with that thought. The second test is a test that I see as we look through John 15. In John 15, Jesus again and again and again talks about bearing fruit. So much so that we can't ignore it. Talks about, if you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. You will bear much fruit. So I started looking, well, it seems as though fruit is an indicator of the vine that we're connected to. So let's look at that. Jesus tells us in in Luke 6, he says, No good tree 
bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Did I get that right? <laughs> no good tree bears bad fruit, no, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. So Jesus already gives us this kind of litmus test, and he says, let's look at the fruit that we see in a person's life, and then we can have an idea of where, what kind of vine they are connected to. And as we do that, we have to be a little bit careful, because, again, fruit can look good and attractive. Even, even here, we look around and we see these beautiful red berries on the trees around the neighborhood. Those are not good fruit. They're absolutely beautiful and colorful and bright and attractive. But they're not good fruit. They would make you sick if you were to eat them. So we have to be careful here about what kind of fruit we're talking about. And if we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, can we also think about the fruit of the flesh? Tim Keller. Tim Keller talks about the fruit of the flesh. And even though Paul, in Galatians, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, just before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he actually talks about, he doesn't call it the fruit, but I think it's, it's very significant that he talks about the acts of the sinful nature, or the deeds. So we have the acts or the deeds of the sinful nature, and we have the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that. We'll talk about this a little more later. We have acts or deeds, which are things that we have done that come out of our own efforts. Think about Moses this morning. He was relying on his own abilities, his own efforts, right? These are deeds and acts that depend on the flesh. But what does Paul talk about? The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit that is born through us, not from our efforts, but from being connected to the vine. So Paul here, he talks about things that we would very obviously see as fruit of the flesh. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These things I think we could easily identify as bad fruit. But what about other things? Back to Tim Keller. Tim Keller says that when we talk about the fruit of the flesh, this is something that comes when we are not truly living as though we are saved by grace, but that we are still working on our own efforts to justify ourselves before God through our works. So that even the good things outwardly that we are producing in our lives could be fruits of the flesh because we're not looking to the vine to produce that fruit through us, but we're looking to our own efforts and our own willpower and our own strength to do those things in order to build myself up and justify myself in the eyes of God and in the eyes of others. I mean, let's face it. You can look around the neighborhoods around here, and we have some of the most wonderful neighbors in Lacombe. Just a few weeks ago, a young girl, some of us know, is hit, her leg is amputated, and people just come out. They come out in droves to help, to give. It's a good thing. 
No one's ever going to say it's a bad thing. How many of those people are doing that because they're plugged into the vine and that's the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? They're doing good things. They're doing good things, possibly to make themselves feel better about themselves. Why do I do good things? Do I do it to make myself feel better about myself? Do I do it to justify myself before man and before God? Or do I do it because it's Jesus regenerating me and working through me and making me a new creation? This is the fruit of the Spirit. So, let me give you two fruit testers to test our fruit, to see what kind of fruit it is. The first one, we can find in verse 8 here. In verse 8, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So here we have a clear indication of what good fruit is. Good fruit brings glory to whom? It brings glory to God. Oh. Showing that you are my disciples. Oh, yeah. So here we have our first tester. Is the fruit that I'm bearing in my life fruit that brings glory to God? Or is it fruit that brings glory to myself? We can even also look at Psalm 92. When I, think about, when I think about fruit being born, Psalm 92 comes to mind, and we look at verses 12 through 15. It says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, Proclaiming what? Proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. The fruit of this tree is giving glory to God. It doesn't point to itself and its beauty and its greenness and its vitality. It points to the Lord. He is upright. Look at what I bear in my life and see that God is upright, that he is my rock, that this is not from myself. So first I would say, we need to look and see, does it, does it glorify God, these things that I'm doing? Then the second test of our fruit, I would say is, is this fruit, is the fruit in my life, does it come even in adversity? Do I bear fruit even in adversity? You know, James, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now another really great passage, similar to Psalm 92, is found in Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 17. If you don't want to find it, I'll find it and read it out. Jeremiah 17 And we'll look down at verses 7 through 8. 7 and 8. It says, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Exactly where God wanted Moses to put his confidence this morning, right? He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. 
It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it what? It never fails to bear fruit. It is not afraid of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. So fruit that is born, that is true fruit, from the true vine, is born in adversity. I would propose to you that if I am bearing fruit from myself, that false fruit, that's going to wither on the vine when adversity comes. Because the source is within myself. And when that adversity comes, that fruit is not going to be borne out in my life. But if we are plugged into the true vine, then he will continue to bear fruit in us. And we've all seen this. We've all seen the beauty of fruit born under adversity. And this, I think, is a good gauge for us to look at our fruit and to say, what vine are we, tr- are we connected to? So, let's move on to where the rubber meets the road. Jesus' command is that you should be abiding in me. You should be remaining in me. How do we do that? I would say that first and foremost, before we get any further, we must understand, number one, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. What does he say in John 15, 5? Jesus tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How much is nothing? It's nothing. It's zero. It's absolutely nothing. So even though it may, it may be the appearance that I'm doing something, I'm bearing fruit, if you are not connected to Jesus, you are doing nothing. And what is that? What is that other than grace? It is by grace that we have been saved, not by works that no man should boast. So before, we can truly abide. And I would say that this whole passage really is all about grace. Because grace is total and complete, absolute dependence on Jesus to do absolutely everything that we need, that none of which we can do on our own. And if we are trying to produce fruit and sustain life apart from Jesus, we have no understanding of what grace is. And we're still trying to live on by works. So if we really want to be abiding in the vine, first and foremost, we need to understand grace and understand that we need to be relying completely on Jesus. The second thing, if we look at verse 7, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. My words remain in you. So here we see that we need to be allowing his words to abide within us. If we, look, if we were to look back at Psalm 1, which we've already looked at, it says his delight, meaning the man who is trusting in God, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it, his law day and night. That person is like a tree, planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. So here we see that the person who bears this good fruit is 
meditating on God's Word. And what that means is lingering in God's Word. Not just quickly hitting it for five minutes and then moving on. But meditating with it. Wrestling with it. Working on it. Not just passing through to the next place. Fifteen minutes? Is that a lot of time? Twenty minutes? Is that a lot of time to give to God's word in a day? Dare I ask, 30 minutes? How much time, how much time do I really give to God's word every day? To meditate on it, to interact with it, to study with it, to allow it to become a part of who I am. And then, throughout the day, to apply it, to go back and say, not just... What does this mean? But what does it mean for me today? How, do, how does this look in my life now and today? So I would say, first of all, we need to understand grace and understand that we're in a grace relationship with Jesus. Secondly, we need to allow his word to abide in us, to linger with it. And then third is spending time in God's presence. Do you know that for a grapevine to actually bear fruit, it takes at least three years? takes time. It doesn't happen quickly. We're not going to get in a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus with just a quick, momentary amount of time each day. The whole idea of remaining, and this is something I think is really exciting, the whole idea of remaining is to remain in one place, to abide there. And it's really more of a sense of being than doing. If I'm abiding, if I'm remaining, here I am. I'm remaining here on this, on this stage. I'm not doing a whole lot. Again, God is getting our, our attention off of what we do is to remain and abide in Him and His presence. And what I think is really cool about this is think about the branches from a grapevine. Are they stationary? Are they static? No. They're attached here. They never leave the vine. They remain there always, 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 unless they die. But they're always working their way out. So even though it might look as though they're stationary by remaining and being attached to the vine, they're actually working their way out and having an influence and they're bearing fruit out here that Jesus bears through us out here and out here, and out here, and out here, and out here. But the whole time, we're remaining. Wow. Two in one. Remaining, but also not static. And let me just direct us back one more time to Psalm 92. It says again, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Where? Planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish where? In the courts of our God. So it's in his courts, it's in his house, it's in his presence that we flourish, where that fruit is borne out. So how do we, how do we bear this fruit? How do we remain and abide? We do so by understanding grace. And it's not us, it's about God, and it's about Jesus living through us. Number two, 
It's by allowing his word to abide in us, about lingering in his word, meditating on his word. And number three, it's about spending time in God's presence, just enjoying his presence, just being quiet before him, being still before him, and getting to, to know him, and remembering that being in his presence does not mean I have to be here in this particular spot in my house where I have my, my devotional time. It means that I can go out and I can go wherever it is I'm going and I'm still remaining in his presence wherever I am. Now, going back to Moses, Moses' first encounter when he met God, what, what did he do when God first spoke to him? He did what? He hid his face. He hid his face in the presence of God because he was afraid. Good thing to do. Perfectly logical. Let's go a little bit longer down the road. Moses has been walking with God. He's been interacting with God. He's been abiding and remaining in God's presence. What happens when Moses comes out of God's presence and sees the people? What's going on with his face now? Wow, it's radiant. It's beaming. They can't even look at him. Is that Moses? Moses, that's the glory of God. The glory of having been remaining in God's presence, shining out. So much so that he ends up covering his face in the presence of people. And then when he goes into God's presence, he unveils his face to be fully in God's presence. Wow. Moses, even though I threw him under the bus this morning, Moses he learned the secret of abiding in God's presence. He learned that secret of abiding in God's presence and allowing God to bear fruit through him. And I'll just say in summary that this is all about grace. It's total reliance on Jesus to do in us what we cannot do ourselves. So when you think about abiding, when you think about remaining, think about God's grace. Not your effort, not your works, but allowing him and the joy of being in his presence and being in his word to work its way out and bear fruit in your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would do what we cannot do. And Lord, would you help us to identify in our lives any false vines that we might be trying to find vitality and meaning and identity through. I pray, Father God, that you would remake us, renew us, recreate us, and regenerate us in a way that you can flow through us and bear fruit that is for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.